Well, good afternoon, everybody, and welcome um, to the LSC. My name is Ernestina Coast. So on behalf of LSC Health, of which I'm one of the, the deputy directors, I'd really like to invite you to this event here at the LSC, which is being supported jointly by the British Academy, but also the LSE's African Initiative, which is supported by the LSE's annual fund. And I'm really delighted to have literally a cast of thousands here this evening. It's going to be a finely oiled machine, um, because as this thing that's spinning behind me makes me feel slightly queasy, um, we will be both debating and presenting and launching um, tonight. So we have two speakers who are going to be debating the issue of what matters most in Africa's disease burden. Timely, not just because of the UN high-level meeting that's happening um, in September of this year, uh, but also because I see that today the, UN, um, the WHO has just produced a report about the chronic lack of medicines, not just for infectious diseases, but also for chronic diseases in both the public and the private sector throughout sub-Saharan Africa. So I'm absolutely delighted um, that we are going to have that debate and that's going to be followed uh, by presentation of the UK-Africa Partnership on Chronic Diseases which is hosted in part here at LSE Health and finally uh, we're going to launch the British Academy's um, report. A shiny new copy should be um, in your paw I hope, um, if not there are plenty more copies outside. Um, we're expecting lots of people to, to still be joining us, and of course there's a reception afterwards, so please do stay behind to mingle the dreaded N-word network. Um, it's always where some of the most productive conversations happen. Although I do suspect we are now battling um, against sunshine in London, um, and people may have got diverted to go and catch those last rays um, today. But without any further ado, I'm delighted uh, to welcome Professor Duncan Galley, uh, who is the Foreign Secretary of the British Academy, uh, who will be chairing um, the debate. And I'll allow you to introduce our two speakers. Thanks very much. Um, what a, a very warm welcome to you all. Um, it's a lot of great pleasure for, for me to be here. And I would like to, to thank LSE for hosting the event. And also to, um, to thank the Ghana Academy of Art Sciences um, and the Royal Society um, who collaborated with us in putting on uh, the original conference in Ghana, um, which formed the, from which the, the report, which you'll be hearing about <coughs> later, derives. Uh, just to put the, uh, that, that sort of uh, activity of the, the report in context of the British Academy, and the Academy has had a very long engagement um, with Africa and it's been very important to us where many of our scholars have focused on Africa and since 1958 we've also supported um, the British Institute in Eastern Africa which is uh, a very really valuable sort of resource in terms of the library it's got this expertise um, and the general resources it can give to scholars who come and meet each other and develop their projects there but from 2004 we decided that we really needed to engage uh, much more intensively um, with researchers in Africa. And we set up uh, a, a, an area panel, an African area panel, and asked them to sort of take an overview 
of where we were in terms of current relationships and how we could improve things. And one of the first things that they did um, was to produce a document called the, the Nairobi Report. And there were copies, hopefully, available as, as you came in. But if, if you didn't see them, do try to pick one up, because it's quite an interesting document. I mean, it, it involved a, a very extensive process of consultation with African researchers and university authorities to try to work out you know, what are the most important steps to be taken uh, to develop social science and humanities research within Africa. And it focused particularly on the need to improve you know, structures and systems uh, and forms of governance within universities to provide stronger research base, on the need to increase um, the, uh, the activity of networks of researchers, communities of researchers within Africa, um, and finally, the need to provide much better opportunities for young researchers, so to give them some, some sort of real career opportunities in the early stages of their career, which I think is really crucial for getting people moving. And another key development which the Africa panel came up with was our international partnership scheme. Um, and this is a scheme which gives teams up to £30,000 for a three-year period to work together and to develop longer-term institutional links between institutions in Africa and institutions um, in Britain. And it's been a huge success. I mean, uh, this year we've had more applications than <coughs> ever before for that scheme. It does get you going well. But, but it's relevant today because um, the, uh, the project that you'll be hearing about, uh, which was uh, co-directed by Amadou Graft Aikens and Daniel Ahunin was um, full, is part of that scheme. It was, uh, it was one of the very early projects under the International Partnership Scheme. So you'll be hearing more about that, um, that later. I, mean, I think it is a, a huge set. It does show what can be done with quite small amounts of money if people have a, a lot of initiative and skill. <laughs> but uh, this, we've got three sessions here, and this first session, um, is going to focus on the nature of Africa's disease burden. And we're very fortunate in having two distinguished speakers to open up the discussion. We have Professor Francis Dodou, who is Director of the Regional Institute for Population Studies at the University of Ghana, and Professor of Sociology and Demography at Penn State University. And we have Dr. Benga Ogadegbi, who is Director of the Center for Healthful Behavior Change at the New York University School of Medicine. So, uh, Francis, can I ask you to come up? And we, Actually, each speaker has about 20 minutes. Would you want to speak yeah. from there? No, I'll, I'll come up there. there. I have slides. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let me start by thanking uh, the organizers and, of course, the UKFK Partnership, British Academy. I basically am from the US, and I get crashed um, the partnership. Um, by way of Dr. Aikens. Let's see what we got here. So it's quite, it's quite a pleasure. What I hope I'll do today is uh, I have to tell them my disclosures coming from the US. Um, I don't work for drug companies. I don't have money for them. I wish I do. Um, I'm funded largely by the NIH. And what I hope to do today is really outline the burden of chronic disease uh, and the economic implications of NCDs in Africa. Um, review the context within which the growing burden is occurring, and then hopefully outline with you 
um, the WHO action plan on the global strategy for prevention and control. So this will kind of set the stage um, for Dr. Dudu's reaction. <laughs> so as you probably are very, you, you know this very well, it's a very well um, quoted slide where 80% of these diseases actually occur in low and middle income countries. And as you can see there, um, sorry I don't have um, a pointer, the chronic disease burden, which is highlighted in yellow, and the, and the, and the, and the turquoise is, um, is, is, is infectious diseases. You can see in low and middle income countries, it really um, accounts for a huge burden uh, of all of the uh, mortality. And the same is true when you look at people across all ages in the low and middle income country. So you see Sub-Saharan Africa here, um, this depicts um, HIV AIDS. All the rest of this is um, chronic diseases, really. So again, just driving on the point that the chronic disease uh, cause of death um, is, still, is still NCDs. Um, well, there's huge economic growth in Africa, um, despite the economic downturn. Um, people are actually doing well. And as um, my, my president, former, um, would say, prosperity is bringing to our nations uh, many benefits but there are some changes um, that are not positive. Um, as our diets, habits are changing, um, so is our waistlines as well. <laughs> so um, already more than 35% of women in Nigeria are overweight um, by 2010. This will rise to about 44%. That's not an exaggeration. The same is true for most of these Sub-Saharan African countries. So that means then that um, almost half of the chronic disease deaths that we're going to be having occur in people under the age of 70. So this, this, this slide here shows you, um, if you look at United Kingdom, which is here, and look at Nigeria, and look at, um, I think I should have somewhere here, Tanzania, here as well. It turns out for people between the ages of 30 and 69, so these are people who are pretty active and working, um, the, the, the projected chronic disease deaths is just astronomical. So this, this is happening. Um, every time I go to Nigeria or Ghana, where I do some work, and you see patients in primary care practices, 40-year-olds have stroke. I mean, that's, that's really unprecedented. My day, my, my day job is to run a hypertension clinic, so I see this all the time. So this stuff is happening. It's no longer the, the elderly old that have stroke, but the younger workforce folks that are having the strokes. And we're seeing a lot of this. So the economists actually um, looked at the issue around economic consequence of CVD, that's cardiovascular disease. Um, and if you look at it, it's very challenging in developing economies. Um, here's a slide that shows the cumulative percentage of all CVD deaths, again, deaths in men and women ages 35 to 64, between, projected between the year 2000 and 2030. Again, you see here South Africa um, and India really pulling the weight here. There's not that much data from, from, from West Africa and East Africa. Most of the data came out of South Africa, as you can see there, and it pretty much reflects what is happening in other parts of the region. If you look at stroke mortality um, in adults, again, the same age range, 30 to 69 in Nigeria, Tanzania, you can see here that they actually, they're leading the curve, um, apart from the Russian Federation or the former Soviet Union. Um, so this is, this is a real problem um, that we're faced with. So the question then becomes, you know, what is the effect of this um, body? Um, and I want to share with you the two contexts in which this is happening. One is the, the ongoing health transitions, and the other is the critical shortage of healthcare workers. So if you imagine that you don't have enough workforce, 
and you imagine that the population um, is actually transitioning in very astronomical ways from infectious disease to chronic diseases, which means then that you need people to live longer and then you don't have, you don't have enough healthcare workforce. Think about then what happens 10, 15 years from now. We're going to be facing a major explosion of how we're going to be dealing with this. The consequences of these transitions, of course, um, will occur and have severe or significant economic hardships, huge burden on the already straddled and cash-strapped healthcare system in Africa. So let me just review with you some of these transitions we're talking about. So epidemiologic transition, you've heard a lot about that, demographic, socioeconomic, and nutrition. So the, the idea here, oh, I skipped this slide here, and I apologize for this. Um, there's a slide missing. I'll try and, try and talk about it um, offhand. The bottom line is that um, there are four stages, really, of transition that we're talking about here. The first stage is you have the agrarian farmers, right? Um, high level of fertility. Um, people are born. And then farming actually improved, and they have more infectious diseases. Things became technological, right? And then people have become really much more prosperous. And then what you tend to see there, there's some overtaking of chronic diseases. And then with the, with the growth in technology, you have people really acquiring a sedentary lifestyle. Um, that's the stage where we're, we're at right now, which is stage four. The idea being we're consuming more fat, okay, um, more poor diet. That's the nutrition transition, if you may. And then you see a lot of folks that are living lifestyles of inactivity, both at their workplace and leisure time. And if you may, it's a nice depiction by the economist that shows what this is going to look like. Um, so our, our predecessors used to actually be very much more active, um, <laughs> and here's what we do now. You know. um, and this is probably a better accurate. Uh, I borrowed this slide from a colleague of mine, George Mensah, who works for PepsiCo, and he, he goes, "This is a this is a more a, a better uh, depiction of what we're seeing today. Uh, we don't even walk drinking Coke or Fanta or Seven Up or Pepsi, what have you. We actually sit on a couch and we have our dogs doing the running on the treadmill." Uh, but I, 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 I put this slide here to show you that, to put the face to the kind of stuff we're talking about here. The rate of the growth of diabetes in sub-Saharan Africa, which is a disease of nutrition largely, um, is growing. So we're seeing very young people having chronic kidney disease and having amputation. And one of the most um, common causes of complication in diabetes is peripheral arterial disease. So they're going to be having this amputation at a very young age. And the same is true for blindness. Um, this is not just glaucoma, this is diabetes-driven um, blind retinopathy. So what about the shortage of healthcare workers? Now you have a sense of what we're dealing with in terms of transition. It turns out um, estimated shortage of almost 4.3 million health professionals worldwide. That's what the report is saying. 57 countries have problems, um, and they're mostly in sub-Saharan Africa. If you look at that, 4% of healthcare workers, but they have to carry the burden of about 25% of the global burden of disease. Um, there's a huge disproportionate um, um, ratio there. And the Americas, on the other hand, about 37% of healthcare workers only carry about 10% of the global burden of disease. So we have a major problem. And I think this, this, this map shows it better here. Um, the, 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 the areas in light orange uh, are countries without critical shortage, and the areas in deep orange are those with critical shortage. As you can see, most of those areas are in sub-Saharan Africa. But there's a third contextual factor. So there's the idea around epidemiologic transition. There's the, there's the idea around um, the workforce shortage. 
But there's a thought factor as well that we often don't care about. And that has to do with governance and what is happening in most of these countries. There's a lack of a national plan that's targeted at chronic disease prevention, given the low policy and interest that this garners um, in, 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 in these countries' uh, policies. And most African countries are yet to develop a chronic disease plan or policy. It's just not there. It's non-existent. People don't know what to do. We're still struggling, actually, uh, with even the, the healthcare coverage um, for these areas. And so if you, if you put this factor together with critical shortage and the growing epidemic, then we have a major tsunami um, that's, that's about to happen. And the, the unfortunate thing is that this is not infectious disease. You don't see these death rates. You don't see them on TV. It's not HIV. It's not malaria. Um, so it tends to be asymptomatic largely, right, when you think about it, until you start having the complications. Even when you have complications, what happens? People just melt away. Kidney disease, dialysis is, is growing abundantly, now, at least in Nigeria and Ghana, and in Cameroon, I should say. Huge, huge. A lot of people are on dialysis. Very expensive. They can't, people can't afford it. And the government doesn't have a plan on how to deal with that. And then we're losing the workforce, when you think about it. These are young folks who basically are now on disability. Um, more often married, um, have four or five kids. Um, um, we stay at home, um, 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 wives um, or spouses. So it's, it's a big problem. So what, what happens to all the, um, um, the aid to support um, NCDs? There's none. Okay? There's none. When you think about this, there's about $22 million on other kinds of issues. But I don't see any here on this map, WHO map. There's none. This is, nothing has been put forward uh, to actually try to, 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 to take care of this problem. So here's a slide I borrowed from George Mensah as well that shows you where does the aid go. It goes everywhere but NCD when you think about it. So there's really not much happening in terms of policy on how much you're going to spend on actually trying to stave off the epidemic of NCDs in Africa. Um, this I, I put this slide there to show there are other resources that people can take advantage of. There are several documents. I really like the Global Status Report. came out in 2010. Um, and this one is the work of WHO in the region on the period between 2008 and 2009. Um, that really tries to showcase the growing burden of NCDs in the area. So what matters? Um, so I don't want to leave you with a note of pessimism. Um, I think things are happening. So WHO has an agenda called the Action Plan on the Global Strategy for the Prevention and Control of NCDs. And they pretty much outline six areas that they think people should be focusing on researchers, um, policymakers, government workers, heads of states. And the first one is to raise, really, the NCD priority in development work. So can we raise the awareness so people know that this is a problem that we have to tackle? The second one is to establish national policies um, and plans for NCD prevention and control. Um, the third is to promote risk factor reduction. So my day job is cardiovascular risk reduction. And this is actually happening. I'll share a couple of slides showing, showing how that is going on now. To promote NCD research, there's not much happening. Um, I can speak from the United States perspective. We have something called the Fogarty Institute. We have the Gates Foundation. The Gates Foundation doesn't fund that much research on NCDs. But at least the Fogarty Institute has been very active in the past five to 10 years, really funding a lot of research in this area. But again, their budget is very small, really small, about $300 million a year. That's not enough to actually help grow researchers. But it's happening. Um, and then you have to promote NCD partnerships. That's probably where the UK-Africa partnership comes in that the British Academy, Academy is funding. And of course, to we'll monitor and evaluate the progress. So 
the other idea about the WHO agenda is that it recommended a three-pronged strategy. Uh, one is epidemiological surveillance. I frankly think we've had enough of this. Uh, we've documented these problems over and over and over again. It's time for some action, right? Um, hopefully the, the, the United Nations meeting in September will probably shed some light on the kind of action that should be taken in this regard. But that's one strategy. The second and the third is the primary and secondary prevention aimed at targeting complications, right, of these chronic diseases. And more importantly, improving people's quality of life through three areas. One, psychosocial issues and economic interventions. So there are tons of projects that are out there, but they're they very small pilot projects that begin to look at the economic interventions. I haven't seen much in, in Africa, frankly. Most have come from South Asia, where you see the issue around microfinancing and how that can improve the health of women and hopefully then their spouses and then their children. And with respect to structure, though, the, the panel recommended two things. One is interdisciplinary research that will address a multifaceted roots and consequences of NCDs. And the second is um, innovative interventions that make efficient use of existing economic and human resources. That to me is key because if we're saying we don't have enough healthcare workers, we don't have enough physicians, we don't have enough nurses, can we then take advantage of the alternative cheaper community health workers, lay health workers, however you want to name them? to actually do some of the work. And frankly, there's some data really showing that there's something called the concept of task shifting. Um, and the idea is that this can make self-management strategies um, very feasible. Why? Because a lot of these chronic diseases, what do you have to do? You have to lose weight, diet, physical activity, engage and be activated in your own care, right? So you can do a lot of these things um, by using the non-professionals. And so task shifting is a process of delegation whereby tasks are moved um, where appropriate to less specialized non-physician clinicians or NPCs as they're known. And these are not trained people, but they can make very basic diagnostic and therapeutic functions of physicians. They can carry out those, those tasks very well. It's been found to be effective in the HIV programs. Um, that, that's, really, that's really the hub of the HIV work um, that you see out there. But there's little data on how this can work when it comes to NCDs, especially in cardiovascular disease. And I just came back from Uganda, where actually and we have the Pan-African Society of Cardiovascular Research, um, where we review some work looking at what has been done in the area. It turns out we don't have much. We have probably two studies that has taken the WHO agenda and tried to influence um, 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 this strategy in terms of high blood pressure. One of them is, is a study that came out of Cameroon, actually, um, using NPCs to integrate management of hypertension um, in rural Cameroon. And I'll briefly tell you what they did. The idea was to evaluate the effectiveness of this integration um, and looking at how th that can actually be implemented in 75 primary care practices um, in rural um, Cameroon. I apologize for this slide, it's very fuzzy, but the bottom line, I can see if I can share this with you, is that what they did was they went to these practices and then they found out who the NPCs were. Um, they looked at the practices in terms of what they have in terms of equipment to measure blood pressure and glucometers to measure um, glucose um, um, body in patients who have diabetes. They trained a lot of nurses and then they came back in two years to see what happens, right, to blood pressure control and to see what happens in terms of sustainability and the adoption of the things that people received. It turns out, when you look at this, when you look at their data two years out, let me see if I can. When you look at their data two years out, 
they had significant improvement in knowledge of the nurses. They had significant implementation and sustainability of the programs. But the problem they dealt with was a huge attrition over time. They only had about 16% of those that were being tracked that fell off the, off, off the bandwagon. Why is that? Well, people are not used to go into the practices to receive care. And this highlights a second problem. We have to start thinking about moving out of the practices to really go into the community settings. Um, people will listen to their pastors or their imams in the, in the mosque. People often listen to their, to, to their head, their village, village heads. Um, so we have to figure out a way to take the same MPCs and have them implement these programs uh, in community-based settings. The second study, of course, came out of WHO. Um, the World Health Organization came up with a program called the Cardiovascular Risk Assessment Package in 2004. And the idea was that we're going to stratify people in a primary care practice and then offer some kind of treatment at the very basic level. And then we we'll see what happens. If they need further help, you refer to a network of specialists. So you don't have to use specialists upfront to take care of primary care problems. They implemented this program in about 40 sites, 20 in Nigeria and 20 in China. And they looked a year out what happens to blood pressure. Um, and it turns out, I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to belabor the point, it turns out that when you look at the blood pressure control uh, in the two sites, everybody did very well, control and intervention. But intervention did even much better uh, to the tune of five liters of mercury for systolic, a top number, and two for diastolic. And that's what we see in outcome trials. But what struck me is not just that. If you look at the number with increased consumption of fruit and vegetables, which is a lifestyle issue there. It actually went up for the Nigerian folks, not so much for the Chinese. And the same was true for smoking cessation. Same was true for physical activity and weight loss. That's a big deal. To have NPCs deliver something that we think should be very intensive on really two, two periods, four months, eight months, and look at data at, at 12 months, I think is pretty impressive. And then there's data now um, that is ongoing from Dr. Ajiman's program in Amsterdam. Um, Amsterdam Medical Center, they have a program where they're going to primary care practice in Nigeria, really helping to teach again MPCs to deliver a much more focused intervention than WHO one that I just reviewed with you. So these are very few programs that are out there, so I want to end on that note. We have a problem. The problem is the problem of NCDs is growing. We have huge transition happening in the setting of low healthcare workforce, also in the setting of lack of policies. But there are ways that this can be staved off. What we don't know yet is how this thing can be implemented um, on a full-scale level. I thank you for your attention. Good evening, you That's a very tough act to follow. Um, there are lots of differences between us. He said he flew in from Nigeria, uh, from the U.S. I flew in from Ghana. He's got a really nice tie. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> I got this in Ghana. <laughs> he comes at this from a medical bent. I'm a sociologist. And so hopefully what, what I'll talk about will complement what he has said um, a bit more. There's also the fact that he put a very high-tech presentation out. I consider myself a storytelling demographer. 
And so I have uh, just a story to tell, nothing more than that. I have a very, very basic understanding of economic and sociological factors, but I'll try to bring them to bear on what I have to say. And I start out with, perhaps I should also tell you my background, the two things that I look at. One of them is how gender and power interact to affect decision-making about sex. And the other thing is, has to do with how urban poverty and health interact. And so the conversation we're having today links much better to this latter research agenda than to the gender, power, sexuality kinds of things that I do. So I wanted to start out telling you where my data were going to come from. It's primarily anecdotal. Uh, I want to lean on the last 50 plus years of life that I've spent in this globe. And it seems to me growing up in Africa that, a few years ago, that if you were going to make it beyond infancy, you, 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 you had to try to survive a regime of infectious diseases because in the 60s they were extremely prevalent and they would take you out if you weren't hardy enough to make it beyond uh, to, to, to make it beyond infant stage. Over the last quarter century, what we find is that HIV has joined a host of other infectious diseases. And these have now been, and again, I'm talking about the malarias and the TBs, and these are now acknowledged as the primary killers on the continent. <clears throat> Unfortunately, in this same time, we've had an appreciation of the influence of chronic diseases. And as Benga just showed, these make for substantial impact, both in terms of mortality and in terms of economic growth. Cardiovascular diseases have become the second largest killer in many of countries in sub-Saharan Africa beyond, behind infectious diseases. And this anecdotal evidence that I lean on, I think he also referred to, I'm just 51 and I've had a number of classmates, at least a dozen classmates who've passed in the last 10 years from heart attacks and from strokes and, and, and whatnot. And it's pretty ironic because like I said, at the onset of my life, infectious diseases were supposedly the things that killed us most frequently. And the whole notion, <coughs> if you think about the demographic transition that he, he, he put up on one of his slides, is this transition where we presumably move from high mortality rates and high fertility rates to much lower mortality rates and declining fertility rates. At least that's how it's manifested itself so far in Sub-Saharan Africa. The point of that is to argue that the diseases that used to kill us 50 years ago were presumably, well, the, those infectious diseases were presumably diseases of poverty. And it's ironic now that 
chronic diseases, which I guess people in my field, in demography, would refer to as diseases of affluence, have now become such a significant factor. The irony being that, unlike Benga, I, I won't quite say that most Africans are affluent. I mean, I think he's got a point that there's been an appreciation of, of, of yeah. uh, there's been economic growth in Sub-Saharan Africa, no doubt about it. But I think that a large, perhaps even most of our population still live in significant poverty. And so within that context, to have people dying from what my field would refer to as diseases of affluence is, um, for me, a, a, a paradox, a conundrum. So cardiovascular diseases, strokes, hypertension, diabetes, um, and a gamut of cancers are now killing people as, as young as 40 and sometimes even younger um, in, 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 in sub-Saharan Africa. So that as we've negotiated this demographic transition, these diseases of, pop, uh, of affluence have become more prevalent. And it's, it's, it's a difficult thing for me to try to understand how this happens in a context where you couldn't quite say that the continent has become the most affluent one. So as a sociologist, where I typically would go first is to look at context, to try to understand what contextual factors would explain these phenomena, these observations. Generally, the first one you can think of, especially if you're thinking about chronic diseases, is globalization. And when I think about globalization, things, uh, the, the, the thoughts that come to me if we're playing word association would be cinema, television, media. Um, there's this whole notion of the McDonaldization of the developing world. And now Walmart is doing the same thing, so we probably could call, coin a Walmartization um, um, word too. But the former marginalization, you can link to the conundrum of simultaneous incidents of under and overnutrition in the region, Sub-Saharan Africa, that is. And it, 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 it connotes a clear implication for diets, as vegetable-inclusive diets have lost out to high-fat-saturated diets. And another conundrum in this particular regard is that this sort of poor nutrition is found both among the poor and the wealthy on the continent. And so you have really poor people who now can't afford the fibers, who now <laughs> go in for high-fat foods. And then you have high, uh, very wealthy people, or the more wealthy people, who I guess are learning from the whole globalization phenomenon um, how to sort of think about McDonald's as being the place of choice to go have dinner. And it's not just McDonald's, it's a whole host of fast food places that rely on fried foods as their um, medium of delivery. Smoking is another manifestation that I believe is, is, is I mean, I, I think in Sub-Saharan Africa, what you will find if you look at their literature is that it has to do with trying to portray status. And that's something that's probably also been um, reflected or manifested through the, the visual medium. Another contextual factor that I guess impinges on the work that I do is urbanization. I think that the research on chronic diseases suggests that there's this strong linkage between urbanization and chronic disease manifestation. And I think it has to do with lifestyles, quality of life, and, and um, I think 
he made a really good point about the sedentary lifestyles that we live on. Those of us who become professors at the university in Africa tend to frequently be given air-conditioned cars. And so when we move from one department to the next to go to a faculty meeting, we get in these cars and drive 300 yards to the faculty office. And, yeah, it's, but we do it, and that's the truth. So urban populations in sub-Saharan Africa are growing much faster than they are in any other region of the world today. I think the rates of urbanization exceed 4% in pretty much every African country. For those of us who are demographers, that suggests that um, 16, 17 years, these urban populations will double. And so we walk around sub-Saharan Africa and cities today concerned about um, traffic and lack of housing and a whole host of other things. And the good news, if it is good, is that in 16 or 17 years, those populations will double and those problems will probably more than double. Um, urbanization rates in the developed countries are typically below 1%, sometimes to the tune of a 0.5, half a percentage point. And so it's interesting to think uh, Sub-Saharan Africa is actually leading something right now. It's the fastest rate of urbanization. But Contextually, if you reflect on it, you recognize that I think Europe went through its urbanization boom what, a couple of centuries ago, thereabouts. And so we're finally catching up with urbanization. And one of my concerns with, with, with the way Sub-Saharan Africa is urbanizing, and remember that it has these implications for uh, chronic disease manifestation, is that the countries in Sub-Saharan Africa that are spawning these really large urban populations. And I think the data suggests that within the next 10 to 15 years, the continent will itself be more majority urban, more than 50% urban. See, when Europe, North America, East Asia, Latin America were urbanizing, I think they did so amidst a context of economic growth, okay, at the various times in which they hit the peaks of their urbanization booms. In Sub-Saharan Africa, it's been difficult to see really sustained economic growth in most of our countries. The argument then is that any urbanization that's going to happen now is probably going to occur amidst really difficult or really challenging economic circumstances. And consequently, it's going to manifest itself. It already is manifesting itself in the development of huge slums that um, those, those of us who either live in or have been to Sub-Saharan Africa will probably um, recollect if you just close your eyes and think about it. What that means then is that you've got this interplay of urbanization and poverty, two contextual factors that impinge on, on spread of chronic disease. And I guess for me, a question that arises then is how we deal with these issues. I think Benga already talked about the economic implications of the chronic disease burden that's expanding on the continent. I think one thing that his slides pointed out to me that I, he didn't quite sort of underscore verbally was the fact that these diseases are impacting people in their prime working ages very significantly. And so in terms of the 
the extent to which these should be well able bodied people should be able to con uh, contribute to economic growth and to the creation of, 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 of wealth in the continents, we end up actually having to be in a situation where we have to take care of them and we're not doing that really well. It brings me to a final contextual factor that I will talk about and it's the fragility of the existing health systems on the continent. So once you start looking at health systems in Sub-Saharan Africa, you will hear people very quickly talk about quality of care. And quality of care is significant in this particular instance because it actually diminishes the demand for health care from, uh, from the health sector, from these, from these institutions. Um, the quality of care is not where it should be. And what you typically hear is people, especially the poorest people, who are reluctant to go to the institutions, the health institutions that have or should have the, the, the instrumentation to take care of their concerns. And people will then opt for licensed chemical sellers and, and a whole host of other um, health provision I don't know if I should call them scientists, but that's what's coming to mind. A, a, a cadre of personnel, I guess is what I should say. And, and consequently, what you find is that the people who probably need to use the existing infrastructure the most don't even attempt to engage with the health system. He, he mentioned, my colleague mentioned, the scarcity of health workers, both at the doctor level and at the nurse level. And I think Sub-Saharan Africa is probably the most deficient, if I'm correct, on, on that particular count. So we've got this health system that is deficient on a number of fronts, but then it also is overburdened or stressed by the infectious diseases or having to take care of the infectious diseases. Which means then that whoever actually is inclined to go and uh, well, try to get health care from any of, of the major hospitals in Ghana, for example, should be ready for an ordeal that um, frequently people would, do not like to repeat after they've had one major um, uh, encounter with that health system. What does all of this mean for me? Well, first of all, it underscores a lot of frustration that a lot of us who work in this area seem to have. Why? It would appear, I, or I would like to suggest that dealing with the issues of chronic diseases probably should cost less than dealing with diseases such as HIV AIDS, tuberculosis. I think Binga makes a really good point that addressing this issue in a preventative format or in a preventative approach probably means that we need to deal with lifestyle issues. And I would argue that that's probably less costly than to try to do the things that we do in the field of HIV. You think about the risk factors, alcohol consumption, tobacco smoking, physical inactivity, obesity, high blood pressure, hypertension. And these are all as he suggested, things that we probably should be able to address from infancy or from at least, um, yeah, from infancy in ways that aren't very expensive. 
My understanding of the educational system, tinkered as it was with by the World Bank and these other institutions that thought that primary education was essentially all that one needed to get out of poverty, and we spent the last 10 or 15 years messing with the educational systems in, the, in, in sub-Saharan Africa, at least I know, is that we focused on something that we call academics. And what it's done is also driven physical education out of the school curricula. So when you go to schools today, and I tend to spend a lot of my mornings in schools because I have two school-age-going kids, you find out that physical activity is virtually non-existent. Now, you compare that to 40 or 50 years ago, and a lot of us used to look forward to those sessions where we had physical activity and we could rest our intellectual muscles during those times. But today, our kids go to school and the physical activity is not on their curriculum. I think a what it manifests then is you see a lot of six and seven and eight and nine-year-old children who are already overweight, indeed, obese. And I think the implications for, the, it, bodes, it doesn't bode well for national health costs in the future. And I think that if you think about perhaps curbing smoking, curbing alcohol use, it would seem that campaigns to do that shouldn't be as expensive as the kinds of things that we do in the field of HIV. And even if it did cost that much, I think that perhaps we could be thinking about ways in which we could use taxation, a nice economic tool, to try to reduce the amount of smoking and alcohol use that exists on our continent. The point I'm simply trying to make is that one of my frustrations is I don't get why these diseases that should cost much less to deal with simply get overshadowed by the attention to infectious diseases and in these last two decades to HIV. It makes me ask, or want to ask, or perhaps I will ask today, why that is the case. And when I ask that question, my mind goes in two directions. First of all, we can look at global priorities, look at what donor partners seem to want to support. And if you look at that on the health axes, you will see that the emphasis is more on the infectious diseases, and like I said in the last two decades, pretty significantly on HIV AIDS. I think a fair question is why that is the case, given the data that the previous speaker presented, data that show that chronic diseases are, I would argue, as significant as infectious diseases, if not a close second to infectious diseases in terms of their impact on productivity, on mortality, on national health. I will posit that perhaps one of the reasons is that HIV will travel. And by that, I mean that these infectious diseases have ways of transcending borders in ways that diabetes will not. 
and so it behooves partners to perhaps focus more on those infectious diseases. <coughs> Why would I suggest something so outrageous? Well, I've seen it manifest itself in other realms of our life. I have seen development partners be really interested in curbing drug flows through Sub-Saharan Africa at the same time that they pay very little attention to general crime in Sub-Saharan Africa. So for me, it's not a far stretch to think that that might be one reason why development partners would seem to be more interested in HIV and other infectious diseases than they would be in chronic um, ailments. But if that is the case, and it is an if, if that is the case, it begs another question. Why those of us in the developing world or from the developing world let that happen? And I'm still struggling with that. The easiest answer that comes to me is that we are so dependent on funding partner dollars that we do not lay out our own priorities or we do not subscribe to any other priorities beyond what the funding partners are willing to, to, to outline for us. And if that is the case, it's a really serious indictment on us as a people. Nevertheless, I think what I would like to leave us all thinking about tonight is that fundamental question about why something, a phenomenon as serious as this, which I think we have a really good handle on how to at least mitigate, can continue to be propagated in this way. Could it be that Western partners really don't care about diseases that won't transcend our borders into their space? Could it be that we just don't have it to do anything beyond what we're, we're dictated to by the MDG plans and, and whatnot? I want to leave us thinking that way because it's another way that my colleague and I differ. He wanted to end on an optimistic note, and I thought that the problem was too dire for us to leave on anything but a pessimistic note. So thank you. We've had two fascinating uh, talks, and obviously posed between them with some very, really interesting problems to discuss. I wonder, Professor Coram, whether I can hand over now to you to chair, perhaps to have a new, allow an initial discussion of that. But many thanks to you both for a really very interesting presentation. Thank you. I think Professor Dudu just chased away at the castle because 
he ended on a very pessimistic note. Sorry, but. let me just um, join things join things together. Um, I missed out on an introduction to, to Dr. Kojo Kulam from NMNIR. I always get wrong, the Nagochi Medical Memorial Institute research. Who will be chairing the second session, but has very kindly agreed to chair the Q&A section that wraps up um, the debate. So there are two very different presenters, and I hope nicely provocative um, presentations. So I'll hand over to Kojo. And the stewards, who, yes, are wearing red t-shirts. So they disappear off into the seats, sorry, I couldn't see. Um, if you do have a question, um, it would be great uh, if you could raise your hand, um, Kojo, Okay, uh, to try and get some uniform, uh, some uh, more to this, I'll probably go from here to the other side. What would you take some questions and a series of them or something? Yeah, I think a series would be better. Yeah, so maybe let me take well, three or four questions and then we'll come for answers and take another. So we'll start with the gentleman on the side. Uh, good evening. My name is Ike and I'm a I'm a Nigerian public health doctor um, working in London. And um, my question is actually, it's an observation and a question based on the last um, comment. And it's about why HIV and infectious diseases take so much um, um, focus from, from donors. I think. The, pro the issue is that infectious diseases um, are things that we know how to deal with and in, de in the developed world have largely been dealt with at fairly simple, in f fairly simple ways. But that hasn't been the case. Um, even the developed countries struggle with the chronic diseases. So th that's part of the reason. But I was intrigued by the suggestion that we've got enough data um, from both sides, because actually I think that's not accurate. So I wondered if you expand on that. Thanks. Okay. Can you be specific? We've got enough data on what? Um, you, you you mentioned in your presentation that the WHO plan talked about increased epidemiological surveillance of non-communicable disease, and you said you felt that was not um, necessary, and. Um, you know, your, um, Professor Donan also suggested that as well. Okay, there's a, little, a lady downstairs. Thank you. My name is Victoria Domeniel. I'm a PhD student in social policy at the LSE. Uh, first of all, thank you. It's, it's refreshing to hear people discussing cardiac disease and diabetes in Africa. It's, it's not something we hear enough about. Um, my question is about the term non-communicable diseases and how helpful that is. Um, I notice that in the way it's been presented, you've been adopting the WHO terminology and using really four diseases in that category. And um, sometimes NCDs are used interchangeably with the term chronic disease, but when talking about chronic disease, we often include infectious disease. In fact, HIV now is, is considered a chronic disease. And I note that really uh, a gaping uh, absence from the NCD agenda is mental health, which represents 
in sub-Saharan Africa, 6% of disease burden among uh, elder people, adults, 9% uh, of disease burden, and is, is not part of this agenda. So the, the question to the panel, I guess, is, is NCD the right terminology? If, uh, if so, what is the binding characteristic of those diseases? If not, what might be a more helpful uh, grouping? Thank you very much. My name is Paul Amuna. I'm from the University of Greenwich. Um, thank you both for what I thought was very interesting. And in fact, uh, Professor Dodu, I think I can say to you that I really don't see any difference between what you were talking about and what the first speaker was talking about. Because there is a continuum. And when Dr. Odegede was talking about the nutrition transition, I am a nutritionist, by the way, uh, you forgot to mention that there are actually five stages of the transition, the patterns. And the fifth one is on behavior change. And I want to also corroborate the point that uh, Professor Dodo was making. Uh, and in fact, there is a lot of research evidence to support what you are saying. It's not just anecdotal, that as one moves from a rural to a semi-urban, to a more urban area, then your risk of chronic disease, which I prefer to call it rather than NCDs, actually increases. And we have seen this in Africa. There are examples from the work of TESFI in Ethiopia, for instance, in Kenya, South Africa, and other uh, places. And I'm sure uh, Professor Ajiman will uh, agree with me on that in relation to some of the work that he has done in Ghana on hypertension. So uh, basically, the point I want to make is that there is a very strong link between poverty and chronic diseases later in life. And this is what we call the developmental origins of disease. The problem actually, as you mentioned, in relation to gender and particularly taking care of women is very important. In fact, it does not start from infancy, it actually starts from in utero. And that is very, very important. And that has something to do with the nutrition transition that uh, Professor Yu mentioned. So I thought I should just uh, raise this point. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Another gentleman there, and maybe we'll ask the panelists to answer. <coughs> Thank you so much. Uh, my name is uh, Felix Asamoah uh, from the University of uh, Brunel. I'm doing my Directorate of Public Health uh, in Public Health. Uh, sorry. Uh, my question is uh, has to do with. I mean, we keep on looking at only maybe cardiovascular disease and diabetes. And as he clearly said, uh, we also forget to look at the mental issues in, in Africa, which is also a very high chronic disease area, which we should look at. So my question is mainly, are we looking at the chronic disease in totality, or we are picking some particular ones, which uh, we want donors to help in? So that's my question. Thank you. Okay. Maybe before we lose track of what is going on, can you give us some responses? Sure, I'll take a stab at some of the questions and then um, hopefully Benga can clean up. Um, there was a question on why HIV takes so much of the focus and I mean frankly, uh, frankly I don't know beyond the fact that uh, funders seem to be interested in putting out money for that. I'm not sure you, you posited that, the, the questioner posited that perhaps one of the reasons is that we know 
how to deal with infectious diseases much better, and I, I, I'm not sure whether I buy that. Um, I, I think that if we consider chronic diseases, and I take your point very well, if, 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 if we consider chronic diseases, um, if we reflect on them, I mean, we, we might understand that we've, the, the, the situation has actually deteriorated and it's deteriorated from a, uh, from a point where I guess one could argue that the demographic transition was such that we n people never really lived to the age where you would see um, chronic diseases manifest on populations. But I would argue that the ages at which people are dying now from these chronic diseases would suggest that they would have shown up then unless perhaps we couldn't diagnose them. And so we have this conflation of even uh, technology to be able to decipher what's going on. Um, but I would argue that I think that the situation has worsened um, with the nutrition, nutritional transition. It's worsened with uh, lifestyles that have changed because of globalization, transmitting images that perhaps it shouldn't have. And I would argue, therefore, that it's, it shouldn't be difficult to address chronic diseases also. And so I can't buy that as, a, as, as an explanation for why we, we, we seem to invest more in, in infectious diseases. Um, there was another question on w what moniker we should use, whether we should call them NCDs, whether we should call them chronic diseases and whatnot. I think that the, the accuracy of, of the situation is that there are a lot of us who work on um, individual diseases. And yet when we get into fora where we have to sort of try to extrapolate what we're, what we're, ta what we're working on to, to audiences that we're talking to, it becomes a lot easier to generalize. And uh, I, I guess the argument would, a, a, a similar argument would be what we do when we use mean, means to, to, to make statements about populations. Um, whether it should be NCDs, whether it should be chronic diseases, whether it should be something else, I, I, I probably will leave to my medical colleague to, to take a shot at. But the last one that I, I thought I, I would speak to is that there are people who are working on mental um, health issues. I mean, I'm actually sitting right in front of one right now, and when she speaks uh, in a few minutes, hopefully that will come across clearly. It's just, like I said a couple of minutes ago, it's just really difficult for s people who have areas of specialty to necessarily be able to talk coherently about everything, everything else. I, I think I'll probably um, take the last question about terminology. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a physician and I'm a, um, I'm a hypertension specialist. I can only speak to what I know. So the idea of me focusing on cardiovascular disease, because that's where I'm comfortable, that's where I live. And I, I should have made that very clear in terms of disclosure. But in terms of chronic disease, uh, the way it's defined in the medical parlance is that if anybody has a disease that lasts more than six months, it becomes chronic. We even have a term called subacute, so three to six months. And then beyond that, you're already chronic. So I agree. I don't think we're going to have any right term. Unfortunately, the WHO used the term communicable because you can imagine talking about TB, which was a major problem, at least in the 70s and 80s. Even now in the US, uh, I work in a public hospital. It's, you see, when you hear the word communicable, it does something to you. Um, it triggers a lot of um, anxiety. Um, anxiety and actions <laughs> where you have to isolate the patient, you have to make things happen. 
And then I'm sure the idea of NCDs came out of what is the counter of that? And I do agree that actually now we're seeing that there's a transition among patients with HIV. What's killing them now is no longer HIV. It's actually the cardiovascular manifestations of their treatment. Um, that's another area that I've, I've had some interest in um, recently. But to go to the idea of mental health, it's, yes, it's there is a problem, um, but it's, again, it's, like, it's, it's a chronic disease that doesn't have a face, um, unlike diabetes, um, unlike uh, high blood pressure doesn't even have it, diabetes, stroke, people can relate to that. And I think a lot of the terms that you see us throw around here is just to appeal to people's hearts and to appeal to people's head and their pockets in terms of raising funds um, for them. Um, but I'm sure when you talk about lifestyle behavior, I run a center for healthful behavior change. That's what I do. When you look at that, the key factor that predicts behavior change is actually mental health. Um, if you're depressed, if you have anxiety disorders, if you're burdened by psychosocial stress, you're not going to change your behavior. It doesn't matter what people do. So the patients I take are very poor patients, um, mostly single parents. They have two jobs. And I'm telling them, you know, this high blood pressure, you have no symptoms. You've got to take that medication every day. They look at me, they're very polite. Yes, doctor, I agree. But you know what? I, that's not priority. Right now, I've got issues to deal with. So I do agree with you that I think as we talk about these um, chronic diseases, we want to probably highlight the role of mental health as it relates to, to those. Now, I'll go to the issue of why I think epidemiologic surveillance should actually be stopped. Um, it's radical, and here's why. Waking weight, when you look at the HIV epidemic, um, I remember I was, a, I was a medical student at the time in the 80s. When you look at when this started, the surveillance wasn't that much. They didn't do that much surveillance before they started looking into, into action. 20 years later, today, we're talking about, we're on the verge, if not yet, of getting a vaccine for HIV. Now, we can do the surveillance we want, over and over again, there's so much data, though, I can tell you. I showed you the slide where you see the countries that are straddled um, with healthcare shortages. It turns out those same countries are where we have data, where we've depicted over and over again, at least for cardiovascular disease, the burden of the illness. What we don't have is every paper that comes out on chronic disease, you're going to see something about knowledge, attitudes, and prevalence. I don't see data that is talking about the interventions that should, be, that should be addressing these problems. I think that's where the money is. We can't wait um, and keep documenting. It's time to take action. When you see eight-year-olds, 15-year-olds um, having obesity and having type 2 diabetes, which is what we see in people who are 40 years of age, I don't think you need data to start intervening on that. And so I, I made that statement in terms of both advocacy and research. And then the third question around, um, I think there's terminology, um, need for data, um, and then I think th those were, the, and then the, 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 what, 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 the totality of diseases, um, instead of just focusing on NCDs and, 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 and current disease. I think that's what, that's what we should be talking about. Unfortunately, I can't talk beyond um, my expertise, and so I focus a lot more on CVD simply because it, it's still the number one killer in the world, period, regardless of where you're from. And I think when we have that at the, at, the, at the back of our minds, it allows us to put things in context. Okay, we'll take another set of questions and then probably move on to the second section in the interest of time. So, gentlemen here. 
think I saw this. Uh, my name is Agatha Bull. I'm a PhD student at City University. Um, I'm happy with your comment to say nowadays HIV is not killing people. It's true, HIV is not killing people. But uh, somewhere I can say we have missed a point whereby uh, if you look at people who are HIV positive and they start ARVs, most of them, they develop obesity. And uh, somewhere, if we are clever enough, we need to integrate these two, whereby we should uh, maybe develop some strategies where uh, those people who are maybe look at uh, these HIV interventions and bring in the issue of these uh, uh, non-communicable diseases. Uh, because uh, now people, they are okay, but they eat a lot, they don't exercise, and they end up developing these uh, cardiovascular diseases. And if they come to the hospital, we only concentrate on these issues of HIV, forgetting the, uh, the other parts of uh, the cardiovascular diseases. Thanks. My name is Charles Hajman from Amsterdam Medical Center, and thank you very much for such an interesting um, discussion. And um, what I would say is, is that, well, you can look at it from lack of development. You can also look at it, in other words, you can look at it from both points. Over the years, chronic disease or cardiovascular disease has been neglected. Nobody wants to look at it, but today, WHO, you're showing documents where WHO is basically putting a lot of emphasis on it. So in that regard, I think there has been good news. Um, I think one of the things that I miss, and I want your opinion on it, is that, of course, um, you are seeing these problems, but most of this problem that we are seeing is mainly also come from structural perspective. And here I mean in terms of education, Today, if you look at many African countries and also uh, many developing countries, most of the education systems uh, purely train people to deal with infectious diseases. And that means that if people are finished, their priority lies with infectious diseases. So it's not time that this, this structure is changed, whereby you include more emphasis on the chronic diseases, such as cardiovascular disease that you mentioned. And if so, how best can you do this? And how best can civil society in terms of um, development partners, what role can they play in such a way that this can be achieved? Because personally, I think the major problems of why we are not seeing progress has to deal with the fact that even people, if people want to help, they don't know what to do. And I, I would like to get um, your point um, on this. Thank you. So let me take the last question from him and then probably. Uh, my name is Peter Mashinsky. I write for the British Medical Journal. Um, I'm interested also in this issue of education, but not from the point of view of medical practitioners, but from the point of view of the beneficiaries. I mean, as, as I understand it, about the, the biggest single determinant on infant mortality is the level of the mother's education. Isn't this also a factor with uh, chronic diseases? 
do I have anybody on this line? Then maybe. Okay. So, could I'll, you? I'll you give it a shot and let the professor do the playable. <laughs> 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 it does a good job of that, really. Um, so the first question has to do with, um, I think it's the issue around HIV has become a chronic disease. And yes, those patients probably that have CVD, why can't you have an integrated approach to taking care of it? I, I also asked that question as well of my colleagues. Um, unfortunately, the way funding flows is disease-focused. And I often tell myself, so I can say I do work in hypertension, and the same patient I see who has high blood pressure also has diabetes, has high cholesterol, and is probably obese, and has some mental issues around depression and anxiety, because you've told them they have chronic disease. But I'm going to focus my work on just the high blood pressure and ignore everything else, because that's my research. That's the way funding has occurred. Believe it or not, the amount of money that comes um, to Africa for HIV research um, actually tells people that you have to focus on just HIV. I was talking to a colleague who is very well funded on malaria projects and says, you know, we're doing this malaria project in some part of Ghana, really, rural area, tons of people, hundreds of thousands, we screen them every day. And I said, voila, can we screen them for high blood pressure? And he goes, um, we're not allowed to do that. And that, unfortunately, is the kind of restrictions you see so as I told him, well, it's really, it's really up to you to, to expand your horizon. Because the same mother that brings that child in for malaria probably has other issues that you can get surveillance on and intervene on. And that's why I'm proposing that if we train the allied health workers to do cardiovascular risk assessment, the same folks that have been doing this, giving medications to patients who are HIV positive, it's the same person that we do the assessment for mental health, that same person can make a big difference. Um, so I agree, there's got to be a way to integrate that, and that's probably the way to go, training people who can multitask on that. And then if they can't do it well, they can then refer um, to the specialist. And then the question that Dr. Ajiman um, um, picked up around structural issues and education, I think is, is a matter of short term and long term. So the, the, the short term in terms of education is that for the short term, I don't think it's going to stave off the epidemic. For the long term, it's going to prepare a very proactive and well-educated populace and healthcare system to deal with the burden of, um, of, of chronic disease over time. I agree with you on that. And that's probably one thing that we need to do a lot of. There's, there's a growing literature. It's not strong, not even, not even in the US. That we look at issues around what we call functional literacy and health literacy. It turns out that people who are much more literate in terms of their health tend to do better um, in how they communicate with doctors or, or nurses and in their, in their quality of life. And those who are functionally literate, regardless of health now, actually do above and beyond much better regardless of your health literacy level. I don't know of data um, from the African region that has looked at that. But I guarantee you, I had this argument two days ago with a colleague in Uganda that you know, we can teach the, the, the African mother to do that because simply given the fact of what she's dealing with, she can multitask, she's doing a lot of things, so she can be trained to do similar things as managing chronic disease as well. But we have to bring that to the forefront for them. Now, I think short term though, I'm not sure how much of that will work 
Short term, we need interventions that can be put in place to actually start to deal with the complications of what we have right now. Long term, education is key. It will be key in schools. It will be key for the mothers. For maternal child health uh, mortality in terms of HIV transmission, that was where the money was. They trained those women how to take their medication, educate them on the misconceptions, and guess what happened? They did much better. Um, so I, I, I agree with those, with those two points. Okay, let's see if I can be brief on this. It's not easy for me to be brief, but I will try. Um, the first two questions seemed similar to me, similar in the sense that they're asking about competing interests and, 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 and why we don't seem to be able to, to straddle them. I think the first one spoke about um, um, HIV and, and, and cardiovascular disease and how they are linked and... and the, the, the questioner was was wondering why we weren't able to sort of do something that seemed pretty logical, pretty straightforward. I, I would I would tag it all to priorities. I mean, he, my colleague just talked about funding flows, and, and but I think it's all about priorities. And f sometimes it's the funding partners' priorities. Sometimes it's our national priorities. But I think it's all about priorities. I mean. My other line of research, which really didn't juxtapose well on what we talked about today, is in sexuality, gender, power, sexuality, family planning, and those kinds of things. And there was a time when, um, well, they still compete to a large extent. Family planning to reduce fertility and condom use to reduce HIV. And you find that these two things, you would think they, they so intersect, so they fit so well, but they just don't work together. They just do not work together. Um, and when I say they don't work together, I don't mean that the two problems don't work together. It's the people who propound the two problems who just don't work together. People who do HIV or who fund HIV want their money to go into that. People who do family planning want their money to go into that. And they just don't seem to be able to recognize that the, 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 the sum of the parts is not greater than the sum of the whole if they would come together. Uh, about your question about training people and healthcare workers, I don't know. I mean, I think it's again the same thing. I mean, um, if the money seems to be going into other than chronic diseases, why would any individuals or why would any people who support um, people who are training invest in that unless national priorities dictate that? So for me, it all sort of boils back down to are we going to be driven by donor priorities or are we going to articulate what our priorities are and, and, and take a position. The irony is that any time that you talk to donors, they seem to be saying that we're here to help you try to solve your problems. And yet, they seem to be indicating what those problems and what solutions they want are. So I spend my time these days basically, chastising isn't the right word, so I won't say that, but criticizing donors and the way they approach the, their work in ways that I hope will get them to sort of sit up and reflect on what they're doing. Because ultimately, um, mother's education, when you look at all the regression analysis that you see in, in, in demography, mother's education seems to be the most principal determinant of anything in demography, whether it's mortality, fertility, and so on and so forth, child health. and. Yet, we don't seem to pay much attention to that. 
And the question then becomes, hmm, we just seen a World Bank which for the last three decades has actually articulated that primary schooling needed to be sort of, was, was sufficient to get these countries moving to the detriment. I mean, we all know what's happened to tertiary education in sub-Saharan Africa till probably about five or 10 years ago because that was de-emphasized for primary schooling. Ultimately, what some of us say is that in the short run, I agree with my colleague that we have to try to figure out what interventions work and in what context they work and why they work and so on and so forth. But in the long run, like a lot of demographers will tell you, development is the best policy. We've got to look at a more holistic way of getting development out there. And some have even argued that if you essentially raise levels of education and not just in terms of the number of people who are educated, because as we've increased education in sub-Saharan Africa, I think everybody would admit that the quality has declined. But if we did education the same way in sub-Saharan Africa as we did it in, 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 in the developed world, um, I think a lot of these problems will just disintegrate. And I think ultimately that's what we need to do. I think the funding partners problem is that they see this as an extremely expensive way to solve problems that are remote. And so they'd rather spend the money on the diseases that will travel, because then they insulate themselves from those. That's where I stop. <laughs> OK, I think uh, <laughs> we can continue for quite a long time for such an interesting discussion and things. But um, we still have some sections to go. So uh, we'll thank the two speakers for quite a good talks and uh, very interesting discussion. And uh, I'll call on Dr. DeGraft Akins and Professor Castleton to uh, take us through the next session where the report on Africa's neglected epidemic will be launched. Good evening, everyone. Um, I'm going to talk very briefly about the UK-Africa Academic Partnership, which Professor Galli referred to earlier. Um, part of our activities led to a conference, which led to the report that you have with you this evening. But I want to talk a little bit about what the partnership is about and to invite new members if people are interested. Okay, so. As Professor Galli said, in 2006, the British Academy established a UK-Africa partnership. Um, and our, part, our project was one of the first two projects that were funded. So we began activities in 2007. Initially, there were 17 partners based mainly in the UK and in Ghana. And over the last four years, we've expanded a number. There are about 40 of us. 
five new partners have joined in the last year from a variety of disciplines. Initially, with the, the, the basic idea had been that we wanted a partnership of social scientists and medical scientists um, working on various chronic diseases, um, starting in Ghana, but hopefully branching out to other parts of Africa um, with UK partners as, as, as research colleagues and, and interlocutors and so on. Um, to date, we have been able to capture that multidisciplinary focus. So we've got members from a variety of disciplines, anthropology, geography, medical sciences, um, psychology, um, focusing on a range of, of conditions, asthma, um, cancers, cardiovascular diseases, diabetes, um, HIV, AIDS, um, and mental health and chronic mental disorders. Um, the funding wasn't you know, significant. It was only £30,000 over three years. So every, every year we got £10,000. It allowed us to meet um, either in Ghana or the UK. Um, it funded a few members to attend the conferences. Um, but it didn't go beyond that. I mean, you know, usually you organize a conference and you know, £7,000 just disappears. Um, but we've been able to achieve a number of things over four years with the minimal funding that we had. Um, we've managed to organize uh, meetings every year. In 2007, we had a meeting in, in Ghana um, at the Noguchi Memorial Institute for Medical Research, where Professor Kuram is the deputy director. Um, the following year, we had our meeting at the LSC, um, at the Institute of Social Psychology. In 2009, the partnership was the basis on which the British Academy, Royal Society, Ghana Academy of Arts and Sciences um, established the international conference on which the report is based. Um, and then in 2010, we had a, a member who was initially based, originally based in the UK, but moved to Monash University in Malaysia. And she thought, well, you know, why can't we have a conversation about Africa's disease burden and Asia's disease burden. So we brought a little bit of money from the partnership and she brought a whole lot of money from, from Monash. Um, and we had an international conference there. We, you know, a few members went over there. Um, and so we had a really successful conference where we had African presenters and Asian presenters talking about you know, the problems um, you know, of chronic disease in, in both regions. The good thing about our meetings um, has been that each meeting has led to a publication of some sort. Um, so we've um, published, as a partnership, two special issues. Um, one special issue in globalization and health, which focused on the regional chronic disease burden. Um, and another special issue which focuses on Ghana's chronic disease burden in Ghana Medical Journal. Um, our Monash conference last year led to a position paper in the Lancet, which looked at the notion of chronicity, um, the impact on health systems. So it brought in some of the issues that have been raised um, in the Q&A session about comorbidities, um, you know, about what, what the impact of chronic disease means for a very weak and fragile um, health system situation in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, the Monash Conference has also led to two upcoming special issues, another one in globalization and health, um, and we've got a call for papers um, for um, an issue in ethnicity and health. One of our goals, quite apart from establishing meetings every year and um, writing together, was to train postgraduates. Um, Professor Gedebe mentioned earlier about the WHO putting emphasis on NCD partnerships. 
um, and on research um, on NCDs. Um, one of the major things is the, is the lack of you know, investment in research in chronic diseases in Africa. And we felt that one good thing would be to you know, be part of the whole move to getting um, you know, new minds and new you know, um, students interested in this area, you know, moving away from the dominant problems and focusing on some of the key issues in chronic diseases. As I said earlier, our funding wasn't that great, um, but we had a you know, sort of creative approach to postgraduate training where our much wealthier partners based in the UK, um, Netherlands, and US who often have funding um, you know, from their schools um, essentially kind of teamed up with, with partners in, in, in Africa, in Ghana and Kenya in particular. So over the last couple of years, students have gone from University of Amsterdam to Kenya, from New York University to Ghana, and hopefully at the tail end of this year we'll have a student from Ghana going to the Netherlands. So the idea really has been that you know, we, we kind of pull together our resources, whether it's time or, res uh, or money um, or particular skills um, you know, to, to making this particular goal um, work. The final achievement, which has come at the real sort of tail end of our partnership because our British Academy funding has ended, um, has been a major grant that um, Dr. Charles Adjaman, who's sitting in France, colleagues at Netherlands, um, have, have got a major um, piece of funding from the EU, about 3 million um, euros, um, looking at obesity and diabetes among African migrants. Um, and basically, I mean, the interesting scientific thing about this project is that the, the, the project is going to be focusing on Ghanaians living in Ghana, in the UK, in Netherlands, and Germany. The idea being that we need to understand the complex interrelationships between um, genetics, psychology, um, society, culture, and health systems, and trying to understand you know, why Africans seem to have a bigger burden of chronic diseases compared um, to, to the, the general population, particularly in Europe. Um, and so the idea is keeping culture and ethnicity constant, we can be able to, to look at some of these, um, these issues. The project will run over the next three years, and the partnership has a dissemination and training role attached to it. So even though our, our funding from BA has ended, we're going to get a bit of money from Charles's project, Rodan project, to carry on some of our activities in terms of meetings, writing, um, and supporting postgraduate students. So for more information, um, Initially, the partnership was um, between the University of Cambridge, where I was based, um, and the University of Ghana. Um, I have since left Cambridge. I'm based in, in Ghana at the moment. Um, but I have a visiting fellowship at LSE Health. Um, and Professor Masayalis has kindly agreed to co-host um, the, the partnership. So the UK part of the partnership is based at LSE Health. And the Ghana, the Africa bit of the partnership is still based at the University of Ghana, at Noguchi and at RIPS. Um, and I'd really like to acknowledge there are a number of people who've made this project work. I remember last year giving a presentation in Nairobi um, and a participant got up and said, this isn't a 30,000 pound grant, it's a 100,000 pound grant because we've done so much with so little. Um, we wouldn't have done it without the, the, the commitment and assistance and you know, faith of, of, of a number of people in the partnership, and their names are up there. Um, many of them are sitting in this room. I can see Dr. Juliet Addo there, Dr. Charles Adjaman, um, 
Dr. Pa uh, Professor Pascal Alute, Dr. Emma Pitchforth, and so on. I mean, all of these people have, have contributed in, in, in many um, ways um, to make this work. And from outside of the partnership, um, you know, without the support of LSE Health, Dr. Ernestina Coast, Professor Elias Mosailos, um, without my current director at, at, at RIPS, University of Ghana, Professor Francis Dodu, without Professor Duncan Galley, um, Professor Koram, um, we really wouldn't have had institutional homes um, and, and people to basically champion our cause. So I wanted to say a thank you to them um, at this occasion. And if you have any questions, we can talk during the reception. Thank you very much. Well, um, I'm, I'm delighted to be able to say a few words at the launch of such an important report on Africa's chronic diseases and the devastating threats that they pose. Um, I, together with Ian Thornton, who's in the audience here, um, had the pleasure of attending the two-day workshop in Accra uh, in 2009 that Amma organized, and I should like to congratulate her again uh, on such a successful meeting uh, and to thank her for all the subsequent hard work involved in producing this report. Um, as you've heard this afternoon, chronic non-communicable diseases impose a terrible burden in Africa, just as they do in other parts of the world. What's important in the Africa context, and what makes this report so important, um, is that this burden places pressure on the health systems with limited detection, uh, diagnosis and treatment capacities, uh, countries that are already struggling with infectious diseases, rapid population growth, limited management capacity and challenging political and economic conditions. Um, highlighting this neglected epidemic to policymakers therefore becomes a real priority. Over the next 10 years, Africa is predicted to experience the largest increase in death rates from cardiovascular disease, cancer, respiratory disease and diabetes, as we've just heard. We really do need to start acting now to minimize the damage this does to the well-being and economic growth of a continent so wonderfully energetic and ambitious. Uh, the Royal Society was very pleased to have been involved with the evidence gathering for the report. <clears throat> the workshop in 2009 highlighted well what national science academies can do. They bring together the best minds. And it was a real treat for the Royal Society to have one of our fellows, the heart surgeon uh, Magda Yacoub, so Magda Yacoub, talk at that meeting, as well as, of course, listening to the Ghanaian scientists from other disciplines. The Royal Society has a long history of encouraging science in Africa by supporting the development of networks and exchanges between individuals, uh, groups of scientists, and scientific institutions. In particular, we're very proud of our links in Ghana. We are working with the Ghana Academy of Arts and Sciences, uh, well, we were working there before 2009, and have continued to work with them closely since part of our program building the capacity of three African academies of science. Uh, we've actually been working with Ghana, Tanzania, and Ethiopia. 
Most recently, we've been working with the Academy on their engagement with the media, this is the Ghanaian Academy, and on their efforts to improve the quality of science journalism in Ghana, part of their public education role. The academies we are working with, as I said, in Ethiopia, Tanzania and Ghana, all have the potential to become real <coughs> positive forces for change in their respective countries and across the wider continent. In addition to, the, uh, to working with African Academies of Science, the Society, the Royal Society, with money from the Leverhulme Trust, is involved in funding collaborative scientific research between the UK and Ghana and the UK and Tanzania. Research projects there are focusing on real African problems, agriculture, water and sanitation, human health research, biodiversity and energy. In Ghana, we are delighted to be funding work in such leading institutions as the Noguchi Memorial Institute for Medical Research uh, and the Kwame Nkrumah University of Science and Technology, institutions that were represented at the workshop and fed into the report being launched tonight. With our work in Africa, the Royal Society has a vision for a prosperous, vibrant continent with breadth and depth of excellence in science and good evidence-based policy underpinned by sound scientific and technical advice. Reports like Africa's neglected epidemic are a key part of realizing this future, and so once again, we're delighted to be involved and congratulate all of those that have contributed to it. Okay, I think uh, at this time I'll call on Dr. Coase to give us a new wrap-up or anything that we have. And we thank uh, Dr. Aikins and Professor Lorna for nice speaking. Thank you, Bojo. I feel a little jack in the box tonight, so my apologies. Uh, well, kind of says it all for me. <laughs> <laughs> I would like to thank in absentia uh, Duncan Galley, our first chair, um, the Foreign Secretary of the British Academy, who, who really couldn't stay um, beyond six o'clock. But I would like to thank everybody for their energy and enthusiasm, and it is remarkable what you can get done on shoestring budgets sometimes, with a little creativity. And if that's the take-home message um, from tonight, then I don't think it's a bad one to take home. But I would like, although I do hesitate actually, given all we've heard about lifestyle change, to suggest that you join us for a drink. <laughs> but I would like to underline that there are non-alcoholic drinks on offer, but we're not too, too censorious of some of us have a glass of wine in our hands. So please do come and join. Come and talk to people. Come and talk to Charles about his incredible achievement uh, on getting such a large-scale funding uh, from the European Union. No mean feat. And come and talk to the people here who do hold maybe some of the purse strings, some of the people who are driving the intellectual and creative agenda. And, and please do come and join us outside. But thank you to everybody that's been involved tonight.